All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Welcome to the show. A realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Powerful. I'm your host, Jeff Coulard, and today's episode, I'm really excited about a conversation. We're going to dig into some some big topics, these ideas of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice uh, with a fellow named Farzeen Farzad, who is, um, he's out of New York, Virginia, actually. He's a consultant in the DEI space, and I've really gotten to know him through his LinkedIn posts, which he doesn't shy away from posting things that are maybe a little bit on the edge, a little bit controversial, and so I'm excited to explore some of those ideas with him tonight and uh yeah if you're tuning in live by all means throw your comments down if you've got questions for myself or farzine then don't hesitate to ask them and if you're tuning in after the fact and you're listening to the show uh, via audio then thank you for tuning in and uh, without further ado farzine thank you so much for making some time tonight yeah thank you jeff for having me this is great yeah, well, let's let's maybe start just by exploring a little bit of your background, give a little bit of context, enough context so that people know kind of your perspective and where you're coming at this conversation from. And so you're a diversity, equity, inclusion, justice consultant, facilitator. Um, how did you get into that work? What brought you into it? So thank you. Um, and, and thank you for including the word uh, uh, justice in there. I, I, I myself typically just go with DEI, but like justice is such a huge part of what I do. Um, and that's particularly stems from, uh, I think my, my background in, in minority rights and advocacy. Um, so in, in my twenties, um, you know, at, after grad school, I, uh, I, I started doing a little bit of work with my own ethnic group. Um, I'm from an ethnic minority, uh, from Iran, um, ethnically Azerbaijani and, you know, uh, I was able to kind of get into that area, um, and do kind of build sort of my network in that space and learn about uh, the struggles of various different uh, groups of people all across the world. And, you know, I got a chance to kind of represent my ethnicity in, um, in the minority rights forum in Geneva and things like that. And so that was, that basically solidified my foundation. Um, Over time, I did some work in, you know, uh, cultural organizations, um, nonprofits, um, went, did a overseas program for a couple of years and then coming back to the U S um, I just kind of happened to fall into a uh, talent acquisition in a higher education institution here in the DC area. Um, but eventually started lobbying myself because of this background that I had ended up working, doing DEI work at the university, then in, uh, the corporate world, um, in the law, uh, area for a little bit and then local government. And then um, eventually last summer, I kind of took all that experience um, and packaged it up and started my own company. So here we are. (laughs) 
let's talk about that decision for a second. What what prompted that decision, or what helped push you in that in that direction? Because I've made that leap myself, and I've got lots of friends who have made that leap, and it's it can be a daunting one. Um, what what pushed you in that direction? It is. Um, it, it was a daunting uh, decision. Um, I think. I mean, to be honest with you, is it, it was just friends and family be like you get i mean you got to go out on your own like this is i mean uh some of the things that like you know i would complain about in my in my past uh workplaces and some of the things that i was like man i wish blah 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 or i wish i had the opportunity to blah 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 and you know uh people were like you have i mean we read what you write on linkedin you have something to say you know create your own framework and then and then take it to that level right because um i was always like you know even even back when i was when i just started out i was i was ranting about the the quote unquote business case for diversity right mm-hmm. and how like it's so dehumanizing and then and then like you know but but there was that yeah but you know we have to we have to get the buy in we have to sell this uh thing so and i i it just it always rubbed me the wrong way and so i think talking to my wife and uh, my friends, they all kind of urged me to be like, you know what, do it. Like it's, it's, uh, you, you have, you have the background, uh, you have a unique background given the fact that you've worked in the advocacy space. So you're, you're centering equity and justice. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I attended some, um, some, uh, trainings from people who were doing just that working solely like centering justice right and i was like this i this is me i i have to do this right uh, they they're not constrained by of course i mean you have some constraints like you can't just like go zero to 100 all of a sudden but like um but more or less they're they're talking about real issues and uh and so i want to do that <laughs> you know, let's talk about that that seems like a good jumping off place to talk about DEI work and cause that's a, that's a big, like that's a huge basket of work to be done. And when we add justice or liberation and we add some of these, like, this is a huge piece of, of the, of society. Like this is a big conversation. I think that yeah. we're, we're, we're wrestling with right now. And I would love to get your sense or your perspective on like what, what's going well and what's not going well. Like where, where are we not making progress? Where do you see progress being made? What are some of the classic traps that people get into or organizations get into with DE and I? And so I know, I know you mentioned like the business case and, and that's an interesting one being, you know, from the majority, somebody with power. Um, like I, I'm often selling the business case to my clients for lots of different types of work, which I would rather sell just the humanity of it. Right. Yeah. Or really like the ethics of it to people. But right. what, gets the, what gets me in the door is the business case. And so that's one we can, we can go down that rabbit hole for sure, but let's start more broadly um, your perspective on DEI work the sector at large, what's, what's going well and where we're running into roadblocks. So I've, I've been fortunate to kind of um, use my net, uh, LinkedIn network to connect with people who are doing DEI work all across the globe. Um, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Netherlands, France, uh, Brazil, you know, um, and I've had some really good conversations and, and the things that I, I suspected are we're like really confounded, like we're, we're, we're uh, confirmed by, by my conversations. And, and the thing about um, this country that I've noticed that's working well um, is first let's split. 
let's split this work into the material world and the ideological world, right? So the material world is the structures of uh, and systems of oppression, white supremacy, patriarchy, the material world that's affecting uh, access to capital, uh, creating disparities in income, housing, education, you know, the real things that are tangible things that are affecting people's lives. And the ideological world is your anti-racism book clubs, like the, you know, people's minds, deconstructing biases, kind of that kind of thing. Um, uh, unfortunately, it, it took the murder of an individual um, to, to kind of bring us there. But we're at a point where ideologically, I think we're way further advanced than a lot of even advanced uh, economies out there, countries that are, um, that are doing, uh, that are kind of like starting on this work. And that be, that's, goes to the nature of our country being a country of extremes. Like we, we dip to the lowest low and then kind of we, our idea, our ideologies account for that. And then we create the, the, um, the sort of history and the sociology and then the, the narratives to kind of justify um, progress. Right. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, we're doing well, right. We're much more open about talking about systemic racism than we ever have, which is great. You know, the education is, 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 uh, uh, is kind of increasing far further than a lot of other um, advanced economies. On the systemic end, the material end, however, it's regressing. I mean, uh, you know, Canada, France, Australia, they have social safety nets that like, you know, they're, they're universal, of course, but they create a baseline where those disparities are much more muted than they are here. We have wide disparities because of our inability to take this ideological framework and turn it into action. So they're further advanced by the default nature of their society, right? So, and it, it's showing up now in 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 in, in ways that um, are very horrific. So you know, uh, Native Americans are dying at Indigenous peoples are dying at twice the rate of white populations in the United States. Um, you know, you can read anything about like how COVID is affecting communities of color, like much, much higher than uh, wealthy white communities. I mean, even before the pandemic hit, um, uh, the average, uh, uh, um, what was it? The, the baseline uh, family um, uh, wealth measure uh, of, of white families was 10 times that of black families. And that is specifically due to these systems and processes that we put in place deliberately through the, um, through the uh, uh, nexus of government policies and in in corporate practices, right? Like they created redlining policies, and then cr- like that ended up creating ghettos in the United States, which were food deserts, and because uh, uh, prices of homes were artificially uh, elevated, then uh, that left little money for um, for other you know, uh, for, for money to go to other aspects of the economy, then because of that, like uh, tax revenue shrunk and then taxes feed into our education system because that's how our education. So all of these things systemically are way out of whack here in, in, in the United States. But, um, but, you know, in the ideological realm, we're doing better. Like we'll, we'll, 
we'll paint Black Lives Matter on a street, right? I mean, and we're 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 okay with that. I mean, not everybody's okay with that, of course, but like <laughs> we can do that. But what about actually, you know, wealth in these communities? What about um, health, like health in these communities? What about um, education, and so forth? So that's where I see us right now. Um, but I mean, at least we're we're talking about it more so than we have ever in the past. Mm-hmm. I think, I hope, you know, it certainly seems that the conversation has been amplified and extended. It hasn't just been a blip, at least from the Canadian perspective. And it's interesting for you to, to name Canada because I look around and I see how our indigenous people are, are treated and have the health and income disparity there. And it's, it's it's pretty extreme too. You know, we've got a lot of yeah. we've got a lot of work to do um, in in healing those those relationships. But um, sure, let's talk a little bit about the the traps of that organizations get into, or the like what you see. Because I've let me ask, how do I frame this question? It's something to do with like performative allyship or performative change. And I see a lot of that and I come in on the heels often of a lot of performative type activities at the organizational level where it's, you know, we need to do some diversity work. And so we'll hire someone to come in and do a lunch and learn on a topic, uh, you know, a narrow sliver of diversity topic of some kind. And mm-hmm. we'll, and we'll check that off, check we've done our diversity work for the quarter or for the year or for whatever. And I'm like, yeah, it's not exactly like that's not changing any, any structures or systems. And so as somebody who, you know, wants to work on transforming the system, um, how do we move away from that? How do you, or where have you seen success in organizations? And I guess what needs to be present in the side of an organization for change to really take root or take hold? Or what have you noticed about that um, process? So honestly, the, the best, uh, organizations are the ones where their leadership is fully committed. I mean, and was fully committed prior to last summer. I mean, I, uh, all the, the, the conversation around performative allyship, uh, the reason why it exists is because, um, it is a, it is a, there's a perverse level of accountability out there right now that it's not authentic accountability. So, um, uh, companies are, are responding, uh, and surviving in a, in a way not to change their business practices, but use their DEI, um, programs as a marketing, uh, initiative, right? I'm doing this. Look what we're doing. Um, let's celebrate this. Let's throw this. I mean, we had this many lunch and learns. We had this many, um, DEI consultants come in. Um, and so it's, it, it, if, if you want to, um, really change the culture of the institution, you have to, uh, you have to commit to really understanding how you're doing business and how you're making profit. It comes down, it boils down to that. Like if you're willing to sacrifice, um, certain parts of your day-to-day operations, that is, that goes from performative to real, right? So um, sometimes, I mean, sometimes you don't have to, sometimes you don't have to, I mean, you know, you may be in a space where you're providing services and you've created a, uh, organically created a, a very responsive organization. And um, it's, I mean, that's very unlikely, <laughs> but like it could happen. But the idea is that, um, that, that, allyship has has become this sort of uh marketing uh business tool as opposed to 
um, something where we're actually really deconstructing what the workplace looks like and how we're serving our clients. And so if it's a, if it's a constant state of um, uh, sort of review, and if we, and if it's, a, it's this authentic accountability where we're actually kind of looking how, like how we're interacting in the workplace, how we're uh, breaking down barriers for um, uh, people of color and including the histories of oppression and injustice in those uh, workplace practices and understanding how power manifests in the workplace. And then understanding um, if we are contributing to disproportionate um, outcomes for the society at large, right? If our business practices are wholly hyper-capitalist and, and contributing to disparities, then that is true ally. That is, a, that is doing the work, right? Um, in, in a lot of my trainings, uh, I talk about the idea that your organization is not a closed system. You're a part of society, right? You cannot, you know, even, even this conversation right here, it's not this closed conversation where it's just me and you in the room. It's my 37 years of life. Plus my parents coming to the United States and, and me when I was a kid coming to the United States and then their history of, uh, uh relationship, uh, with their, uh, ethnic group in Iran. And so it is, it is a constant, um, there are things about our, like, just situational interactions and a situational, like, place in the organization that don't, that, that we tend to ignore that, um, that are very important in, you know, going along with the theme of your, your podcast being power. So how do you help people see that those connections or how do you help people see that bigger narrative? Because I think one thing that I run into a lot is like we live in a hyper capitalist, but also a very hyper individualized like Western societies is all about the individual and it can be hard to see past. And I think that that's where we run into a lot of the, the politics of diversity where we get this identity politics. And it's like, just because I'm a white man doesn't mean I haven't suffered. So don't tell me I'm privileged. And like all of the narratives that are, you know, obviously wrong from a systemic view, but at the individual, if we just, if we walk around the world through our own, looking at it through our own set of perspectives, it's, it can be hard to, to connect. And so a lot of the work that I do is helping people see the bigger picture, but I'm curious about, if that's part of your work and how do you, how do you do that? Because it's probably the most challenging part of my work. If I'm frank, like to get people out of their individual narratives into the bigger perspective of, of society at large and, and, and how groups intersect with each other. Right. No, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I use a lot of visuals, like, you know, I take concepts and try in, 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 in the slides that I use, I try to make it very like visual, for example, like, you know, um, in, 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 1959, two French scientists uh, designed this five dimensions of power model. Um, I have my own way of visualizing that, like, plus, like, you know, I add privilege to that. And so um, there's, there's, you know, th that kind of visualization tends to help. And also uh, when I'm talking, uh, I tend to talk about um, the power you hold in every space you occupy and to be mindful of that and to show, for example, like, you know, I occupy a certain degree of power if I'm a manager, supervisor, all the way up to CEO. But I also occupy a certain power in a space as a man. I occupy certain power or I, 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 uh, I have certain power um, in, uh, in, in, uh, 
in the fact that I'm white approximate, right? That I, I'm white passing, so to speak. But there's also areas where I'm marginalized. And so um, as an immigrant, for example, I haven't had the same experience as some of my um, uh, uh, you know, American colleagues, I guess, uh, like born here. Um, and so I talk about like the, the spaces of identity that you have and you living in a space of power on a spectrum in each of those identities. Certain parts of those, those identities like class, race, gender, have a much greater outcome and create much greater hurdles um, to your upward mobility, to your growth and development than others. Right. Um, you know, one of, one of the, the spaces that you can hold power is uh, you know, where you live. You know, that, that's a, that, that's a, to some degree, like you have, you know, depending on whether you live in Montana or California, you can have a greater vote. Um, based on the, if you know the, uh, the uh, uh, what is it, uh, electoral college system in the United States, right? That is a certain degree of power. Is that is that vote, you know, that that is that happens like once every few years? Like, is that going to out uh, like really affect your commute to work? Where like where exactly, um, you know, uh, uh, the opportunities that you have. I mean, it's unlikely. It's still a degree of power, but it's unlikely. But for but if you are from a community that has been in one of these redlined um, uh, districts that eventually became, you know, what we what we've referred to as ghettos in in, in the past, um, where you you don't have the access to education, you don't have the uh, any any sort of opportunity to. I mean, you, you like your your mental health is is completely affected by uh, the things around you. There, and all of these stem from a deliberate uh, uh, system of oppression created as a result of race. Um, that is a different level of power, right? Like, so there there are certain. I mean, like to to kind of you know, and I use the dimensions of diversity, and I talk about. Like this is the this is the this is the levels of identity you have, and this is the spectrum of power. You have to always be mindful of those. Always be mindful of the uh, the power you hold and the space you occupy or the space you're in, whether that that space is literal, physical, or whether it has to do by virtue of your birth and your name and you know your skin color and and that kind of thing. And so, uh, to, to to kind of round it out, long story short, I have a lot of very like. Um, uh, visual ways of putting these concepts and then framing them so that it's not just like, it's not just like, well, I, I suffered too. You know, I have, you know, because everybody has the, everyone's, own, everyone's the hero of their own story. Everyone's uh, on their own journey. Everyone has their own hurdles, but some people have more hurdles than others, but it's hard for me to see that because of this concept we call it blind spots, which is an ableist term, but unawareness, right? Because of our un uh, own unawareness, because we are focused on our own troubles and our own journey and the things that we've had to overcome ourselves. And so, um, so uh, when I'm showing these visualizations, I talk about exa exactly what you're saying, these intersections. So race and social class um, tend to be the biggest determinant of how you are going to survive in this country. Uh, gender is also, and, and, and uh, uh, even biological, like what they call biological sex, which isn't a thing, but like, um, uh, but gender is a huge determinant 
of um, of exactly like where you're situated as well. So these things compound these things. And it's not just like a one-to-one, like, right. It's mm-hmm. one plus one, like uh, the intersections uh, amplify each other and then create a new space, you know, uh, uh, Latin Latinx womanhood, right. Um, or Latina uh, identity is a, is a compound. It has a compounding effect, occupies its own space than being, um, you know, just generally uh, uh, like a, a, a Latino plus a woman, right? There's a there's an intersectional compounding uh, uh, effect that creates its own space, and that there's power in there too, or lack thereof. So, um, the intersections are important, and you know, I just kind of try and visualize this as much as possible. Yeah, no, it's helpful. It's a nuanced conversation that I think a lot of us are un- unused to having, especially those with power. You know, as someone yeah. who I tick all the boxes when we look at stat, I call it status power. It's called status power in the right use mm-hmm. power model. So in the right use power model, there's five different types of power. There's personal power, there's role power, there's status power, there's collective power, and then there's structure sure. or systemic power. And the first three are really individualized personal role and status. We can like, I can I can intersect with those and I can understand those collective and systemic are harder to see, especially for people who have power, who belong to like the power majority. And so that's, that's one thing that I've noticed a lot of is that when you have power, it's hard to see when you don't have power, it's obvious, right? Because you're, you're, you suffer the consequences or the disproportionate lack of choice and mobility um, that comes mm-hmm. with that, that power. And so it's you know it's a bit paradoxical that the people who have the most power are the least attuned to it and the least aware of it and most yeah. at risk of misusing it and abusing it, which you know we see way too much of. Um, how do you help organizations? Or I guess what's your stance on or perspective on how to measure the impact of this work? Because we talked a little bit off the top, and I think what originally attracted me to one of your LinkedIn posts was this business case for diversity, and that's one way to measure impact, obviously, and that's the classic Western capitalist way to measure impact is like, what's the bottom line return on investment here? But beyond that, the human side of things or the experiential side of things for people in organizations, how how have you seen organizations do a good job of measuring impact or tracking change over time? Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, I tend like there, there, I mean, there's that, there's that like, so diversity is the easiest, right. To track, you you know, you're just looking at numbers, you're looking at, um, uh, you know, you look at your EEO form and see, um, no rise in top five, 10, 20%, um, of said demographic, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not against that per se, but it's not a, a focus of mine. So I, for me, I think the, the, the organizations that do it best are, are constantly doing a um, pulse check uh, culture survey, engagement survey. And, um, you know, uh, even, even the water cooler talk and eventually like just uh, kind of a sense for, um, and this all, I mean, you can build all this into, into an engagement survey, just how, uh, how the organization is flattening out with, with, when it comes to power distance from individual contributors all the way to the CEO or whatever. Um, I think these types of, uh, cultural assessments do more to get a sense for where you're at in the organization because they end up building your reputation 
and that reputation is the biggest attractor of diversity uh, for for your um, for your company. So, you know, if you look at companies like Ben and Jerry's or Patagonia, as we were talking about, like they built that reputation. They like people are like. You know, I would have never thought to work for a, an ice cream company, and I I want to work at Ben, ben and Jerry's just because of like all the cool stuff that there's uh, that their leaders are doing. So like, um, so I I think like in in the realm of um, of uh, of like holding yourself accountable and, and tracking in metrics, um, I sent I tend to center the equity and inclusion piece over the the diversity piece. Um, and that goes that that goes to the like yeah I mean I I do I do audits I do culture surveys I, I try and do, but like I caution you know against the relying too heavily on big data and relying heavily on on metrics too much I mean it's important right you have to have a a, a data driven sort of policy but I think. There, there's a lot of things that you know, like your well-being in an institution. There, it's it, it's going to take some time to be able to kind of put those into, like, build those out into a, a survey and figure out how to frame them so you get the right answer. So, um, I, I tend to kind of uh, just like kind of tell organizations to focus on the workplace experience more than I do any particular uh, metric metrics are good. Um, but I mean, they're not, they're not absolute. So, um, so on that sort of trajectory, uh, you know, when you're, when you're kind of creating a reason to sell this, like get the buy-in, you know, of course, like if you're selling to the CEOs and the leadership, they're very, you know, a light bulb goes off. If you quote the business case for diversity and say, you know, pro, like you read McKinsey, you read PwC, you read all those big Deloitte, all those big auto firms are putting out studies of how like uh, the uh, diversity uh, with its with the inclusion piece increases productivity by 20, 30, sometimes 40%, you know, and then output and profit, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's, I mean, that's whatever, right? To me, I've always hated that because I, I focus on the internal experience so much that is very dehumanizing for your existing employees, right? It is like you're almost commodifying something very human about me and it's being bought and sold. So I'm being, it's almost like I'm hired for my identity and that identity is increasing profits for you. And so it is a, it is a very like alienation of who I am. Um, uh, and so that, that tends to be problematic. And so that's the business case. And then there's a more, now there's a, a moral human case for diversity where it's just like the right thing to do. And that's an easy one, but of course not everybody's driven by, by morality, right? Like mm -hmm. especially profit seeking organizations. <laughs> As so. evidenced by most of our capitalist structures and tendencies. Sure. And, and maybe that's a, that's a question. Cause I've noticed that thought train, for me, usually this conversation is a hop, skip, and a jump to like well, capitalism is kind of rooted in this like settler colonial 
capitalistic structure last four or 500 years, at least in North America, is really built on exploiting human labor and human resources. I even like, I hate that term too, for, yeah. for profit and for gain and for, you know, an accumulation of wealth for shareholders and or, you know, C-suite executives. And so can like how, I guess for me, it's like, unless we're going to talk about that, unless we're going to address some of those issues and the morality of capitalism, you know, anything downstream of that is not going to be a perfect solution. And maybe that's the, the question that I've got is, you know, DE and I done imperfectly. Is it, is it still better than, than not than or done for, you know, suspect morals, right. Or for a profit motive. Is that better, different? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's a big question to drop halfway through the podcast, but that's heavy. Um, So DEI in and of itself, as it is right now, is heavily a part of the capitalist system. Uh, It already is that way. Um, It is not, it is like, I mean, I I would venture to guess in its originality, there was a uh, social justice piece to it, but we've distanced ourselves with that, like over the past 30 some odd years. And then, now it's starting to come into the forefront again. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at studies over the past, you know, that they did over uh, 10, 20 years, um, you can find a number of, of things that show exactly why DEI programs aren't working, you know, or, or like a lot of uh, the, a lot of DEI initiatives to increase diversity in organization have, like either at best, like have been uh, a, a function of population growth, you know, in those communities uh, rather than a deliberate attempt to. So is it, is a, is a, I guess having a DEI team, is it better? Like that is, that's a tough one. Is it better than, I mean, if it, if it, if you're if you have one, it's performative. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, for whom though? Like, for your existing employees, I think there is an element to celebrating your culture, and if if there's a certain degree of um, celebration when it comes to uh, 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 living in the uh, like being in the workplace and 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 being like a sense of pride in your identity and ability to share your culture. Sure. I mean, that's, that's good for 15 minutes, right? You feel good about yourself and then you're back to your daily grind. Right. In that aspect. Sure. I mean, I think like celebrating identities, uh, like getting Juneteenth off uh, is a popular thing happening in, in, in the U S um, in a companies. That, that's a, that's a, a, a good thing. And a quote, easy, quick win that is so popular in this space, but it's, it's very much, I mean, it's giver. I mean, yeah, to, to, but very, like, I would say yes, but like in a very slightly. Um, so one of the things I'm interested in now is, uh, you know, over the next few months, I'm, I'm going to try and, and basically um, uh, marry the DEI field, you know, social justice piece of it with the economic justice. That's, that's like uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, popular in, in some more progressive, um, companies like, so, uh, looking at, 
unionized labor, looking at um, employee-owned organizations, looking at um, like culturally flat uh, organizations, looking at um, places where like power is much more diffused and the lessons drawn. Um, those I think, and I, and I posted about this today, those, those I think uh, institutions have the DNA to, ha- to have a much more robust DNI program or DEI program. Um, That's interesting. I'll, I'll let you off the hook here to think for a sec. Cause I, that is yeah. a big question that I don't have any of the answers to for sure. Um, interesting around the, um, the flatter organizations. That's actually a lot of the work I've been doing the last little while with some clients is around building in some self-organizing and hol- holacracy. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with kind of holacracy or sociocracy, um, but they're very Society, much, yeah. yeah, very flat, like flatter trying to distribute power and yeah. make it and do more consensus based decision-making and some of those pieces to really try and neutralize some of the, the tendencies or hierarchies to accumulate power and use it poorly. Um, if you break that apart and you, you build in the structures for it and build in some rules around who has power, it's, it's, it's a fascinating place to explore, not without its own challenges. I mean, anytime humans come together to try and organize themselves to do meaningful work and there's profit involved, I think there's, you know, we'll see, we'll see what sticks and, sure. and what happens, but there's some tendencies there. Um, let's maybe, Let's let's talk a little bit about the like where to start. If somebody's listening to this conversation and they're like, "Yeah, we need to do something for the the, the morality of it, for the the human centeredness that is a good DEI program," where do you recommend people start that conversation or that journey? Um, or where's the where the, is there a good place to start? Is it just get going or like what's the path for for somebody or or an organization that's really passionate about it or wants to do a better job of it? Um, well, I think it, it, it depends on your resources at at a given moment and what you're allocating for. So like, um, if you are, if you are, if you're a leader and you, you, you are thinking about, uh, what's happening, uh, you know, all across the country, um, uh, when it comes to racial justice, when it comes to effects of, uh, the pandemic and the economic effects. And so you're interested in, in, in kind of starting something. I think, I think the easiest thing to do um, at this, like is, is to kind of one, assure your organization that, um, that you're going to take this seriously, you know, kind of start with a, a some, some type of messaging. Um, your employees of color and your women employees have probably been saying certain things about the organization for as long as they've been there and you probably haven't been listening. And, and so, um, and so to, to kind of, uh, you know, one of the things that's, um, that, that's, that's very hard to grasp that uh, I talk about, uh, and it's, it's kind of jarring a little bit for a lot of people is that, um, I talk about the legacies of bad policies in the past and how it is, it is important to correct for them at some point. Now is a great time, right? If you've, if you've done something, um, if, if you're, if your organization has been, um, you know, I'm not saying like legal, like doing, I mean, you could have done some discriminatory practices in the past that, you know, that, that were overlooked, but even some, some artificial barriers that you erected for certain people that have affected their lives and they're in a certain position and they've stayed in that certain position and weren't able to move up. 
um, reevaluate those pro- uh, processes. And so make amends for past decisions. But the way to do that, I think, is to either, I mean, you can obviously always hire an outside consultant if you have the, um, the, the, the resources to do so. But a lot of organizations now are creating task forces that eventually become DEI councils um, and making it very open and honest, right? Uh, this, isn't, this isn't a way to just get some, like, it's not a, it's not a pressure release valve. It is a, it is really meaning like you're not trying to take the edge off a little bit by having this and checking some boxes. You're re- you're really trying to organically get the experience of your employees from communities that have been traditionally marginalized um, and uh, listen to them. And so a council is a great way. Um, if you're going to create a, a council and they're charged with leading conversations uh, that can backfire easily. So, um, you know, they, there are trained facilitators out there that will give you the framework for having conversations around race or gender. Like, um, uh, you know, I think a lot of now a lot of uh, these equity councils are tasked with let's let's hold a conversation. Um, and then they go just into the fact that let, it's a free for all. Let's just talk, talk this through. And people don't have the right foundation to be able to talk about these things, right? You have to understand the history of this country, the real history of this country to understand where people are coming from. You have to lay the foundation for colonialism, slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, um, the, the, uh, the racist, uh, 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 like policies toward indigenous communities, um, uh, you know, all, all of these hierarchies that have been developed over time, you have to know that in order to have a meaningful conversation. Otherwise, you're, you're assuming everybody's coming at this as, I mean, for lack of a better term, equals, but which they are, but not equality of experience. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so there's a journey to take, right? I, I mean, you know, I, I, like I don't want to be kind of, selling the field or, or, or whatever, but like there is, there is something to be said about people who have training in this space that are able to kind of navigate you through that, uh, through those conversations. So um, if you're going to do it organically uh, uh, and, and like, I mean, it's always good to allocate money toward this because it's very, very important. And, you know, it should be a part of your organization um, separate to human resources, actually. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're if you're if you're young or if you're um, or a new organization and, and you want to kind of start exploring it, um, it is okay to invite people to kind of start you know let's let's uh, start talking about it. But let's let's figure out a way to do this properly to understand um, whether you're hiring somebody or it's, you know like somebody in your organization has the institutional knowledge to to host a conversation like this. Um, which many organizations have, but foundationally like your organization has, unless you're completely homogenous, you have the makeup to have a really robust DI program by the merit of the, the, the human capital or like the, the employees that you have existing. So mm-hmm. um, I hope that answers it. Uh, I, think, I think it does. I think that that's great advice to get get to a shared understanding of what it is we're here to talk about and 
And oh. that's why I found that, that power conversations that, and particularly this, like this right use of power idea, um, tends to cut through a lot of the noise. I find DEI work very noisy and I think because it's so fragmented, there's so many, you know, different, and maybe it's a commentary on our society that we've got so many discrete groups of marginalized and oppressed people, right? From gender to, to sexual orientation, to in, like indigenous or immigrant or black. And like, it's, it's, you know, there's a, there's no shortage of groups. And what we've, what I've, my sense and my experience in this is that it's become very fragmented conversations. And so I'll have leaders who are stuck in, do we add our pronouns to our email signatures? And that decision takes them six months or a year, or they never actually like get to making it. And I'm like, why are we talking about that? first yeah. like that seems like that's something that will make sense as soon as you understand some of these foundational oh, pieces you. of of equality equity justice like like these decisions will not be hard for you they're hard right now because you don't have a shared language and understanding yeah what it is we're here to talk about oh i'm i'm so happy you said that i i actually um uh, just wrote an article called uh well, I can't remember what it was called, but I was ranting against the DEI quick wins, you know, the, 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 the simple gestures you can, you can do to, and they sort of take on a life, like exactly like you just demonstrated. They take a life of their own, like the quick wins become the long-term goal. And so, um, so you really, you need that, like, and, and power is so important to this conversation. It's been left out. Like, you know, the field was called diversity and inclusion, then they added equity and that, that wasn't enough because like you're, you know, there's more to it. And then, so they started including justice and, um, uh, you know, different dimensions of, uh, the combinations of, uh, inclusion and belonging and, 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 and the systemic work, which is justice and equity. But so, um, but yeah, that foundational piece I think is so, so important to, to consider. and I do that, right? Like sometimes people will come to me and, and request a bias training, and, you know, I'm going to be like, um, okay, right. Uh, I'm not going to go in and, and say everybody has biases and blah, blah, blah. Like it's some sort of revelation, right? Saying, saying everybody has biases is like saying everybody has a brain. Everybody has a mind. It's in your mind. It's your pattern recognition. That's all bias. Like it, and it's, it, it's turned into this like, oh, I, I just have this bias. That's why I don't like personality testing because then people yeah. hide behind it and they just say, oh, that's just my bias showing up or that's just my like my red. I'm a red. I'm like, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> you're using that as an excuse to hide behind the fact that you can don't want to change. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like it's it's become it's like D, DEI shouldn't be this much fun. <laughs> like there should there shouldn't be this much positivity in this field. It is a it is a it is solely should be in the realm of dismantling. I mean, there's a celebratory piece to it, but dismantling these systems. So when somebody comes and asks me about like bias training, I'm going to talk about the history of colonization in that. And they're like, how, how is that possible? Well, biases come from stereotype. Like, you know, all these inputs kind of are embedded in your brain and they come from mythologies created to oppress and created to hold power over people. Right. Mm -hmm. And without that understanding what do you do? Like, oh, I just learned about a biases. What are you going to do with that information, right? Like, if you're an individual contributor, you have biases. Are you really going to affect somebody's life to the degree where uh, uh, where a hiring manager does, or extrapolate that into society where, like, people in Congress do? Like, your biases will show up in harm if if you hold power in a space. Mm -hmm. And so, um, understanding that fundamental. Uh, 
uh, you know, having that fundamental understanding of power is necessary and understanding how racism is structured and like is built into our structures that eventually biases act upon that framework is super important. Like, that's why, like, I, I, you know, thank you for saying the foundational piece of it because this is a huge part of what I center in my, in my work. Yeah. And, and I, and I see that as being how we move past some of that performative quick win checklist style is to actually dig beneath it. And, you know, if we look at the isms, the, the racisms, the sexisms, the ableisms, you know, when we look past those, yeah. yeah, when we look underneath of them, there's symptoms of something, what are they symptoms of? Right. And so that's like, and I learned that in addictions treatment is when you view addiction as a symptom instead of a problem, you get much closer to what's really going on and how you might affect meaningful change for somebody. You know, and we, yeah. when I think that we're at that place of there's a lot of Band-Aid fixes that we're trying to throw on these symptoms of underlying problems. And so when we ask, like, you said just defining the problem is an act of power. Right. right. And it's, it's, it's probably the primary act of power. Actually, when I think about the ability to define what the problem is for a group of people or for an individual or for society to be able to point to the problem and define it using your own language and then decide what solution is required. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, that was fundamentally what we would wrestle with because I was working with youth in addictions treatment and they would come in believing they had an addictions problem because their parents had told them they had an addictions problem. And their parents have the power to define the problem. And so the problem, but it's like, it's never the problem. We dig beneath it and there's all kinds of layers to that problem. And eventually all roads lead to power was the realization. And so my journey with power actually started in addictions treatment. And when we started to understand power better, we could understand addiction, which was just fascinating to me. Um, It was probably the single most important breakthrough at the treatment program that I, that I worked at was compassionate communication or nonviolent communication and right use of power those two models helped us understand the work we did with at the individual level. And then of course I put my head up and I start looking around society and I'm like, Oh, this explains everything else too. Like this, this idea of power starts to explain the experiences we have um, as groups of people and in our organizations. So certainly it's a passion of mine and why the show exists and why it's called powerful and yeah, why I get wonderful. to have these conversations. So um where to for you from here? What's what's on your plate? You had mentioned some. You've you've been busy, so you've you've gone into the consulting field. Um, mm-hmm. You've been quite busy. It's a it's a busy time, I imagine, for DEI and I work in general. No shortage of you know problems to tackle in organizations. Um, you've mentioned connecting with a lot of practitioners from around the world, and mm-hmm. I, I saw a post of yours actually the other day about you know maybe we need a trade association, maybe we need some sort of like body. Um, so I imagine that could be a huge project. But what are you what are you excited about right now in in terms of your practice and work you're doing? Um, what gets you up in the morning? Um. What gets me up in the morning? I think, um, well, I, I mean, I'm, I will say I'm very lucky to uh, be able to continue saying what's on my mind and, and kind of um, speaking to this combination of my own experiences plus what I've learned in my education and, um, you know, like how to show up for um, other communities and, and be a good ally. Um, I've been able to speak to those things, but still, you know, have, have an inflow of people interested in my work, which is, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally grateful for, I don't know if that's a, a, like a sign of the times or if I'm just in a, um, I mean, I am in a very privileged position uh, uh, where I am, I mean, hands down, but um, if other practitioners are noticing that too, um, 
I'm not sure there, there are, I know a lot of practitioners out there that are, that, that are actually doing well, um, centering equity and justice. So that's, that's great to hear. Um, but that, that piece of it is what drives me, right? Like I, you know, the, 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 the revelations that I like, uh, not revelations, but the kind of like aha moments when, you know, I'm speaking to certain things and then I put, I put like these, buzzwords of bias and prejudice and um you know all of these like dei terminologies that are popular into the context of history and saying oh that's why like when people understand oh that's why we're learning this like that's why it's important right that's i think the thing that really i mean that's that's why i think i think a lot of dei practitioners are lucky to be in that space because you truly get some sort of very like it's very gratifying you get, you get some satisfaction out of the fact that you're doing this work and, and hopefully like you're seeing people like have those moments where like, wow, I really need to, to you know, investigate this further at, at minimum. Right. So mm-hmm. um, that that's, that's exciting for me. I think for me personally, um, uh, my trajectory is, uh, is un like, I don't, I don't have like this, this, this plan I did in the beginning um, have this like strategy but things are sort of just happening to the point where like we're two months into uh, to, to 2021 and I'm just kind of like, you know, let's, let's ride this out, you know, <laughs> see, see where, see where things are going because I'm, I'm getting like, I'm at the point where, um, you know, there's a lot of great word of mouth on what I'm doing. And I think, you know, people are, uh, interacting with my LinkedIn posts and I, that, that helps some sort of organic marketing. And, and so people are like uh, somewhat, at least, oh, you know, hopefully somewhat interested in, in what I'm, what I'm talking about. So um, I, you know, from me personally, I think, I mean, there are people, you know, in my life that would be very upset to hear me say this, just kind of like winging it, but like um, uh, especially my wife, who's very, very structured in a lot of things that she does, but like, uh, and no, no one wants to hear that they're, they're, you know, they're, they're winging it with their business. But, um, but there's, there's been avenues that have come up that I would have never expected and I would have mm-hmm. never planned for. And so I'm just, I, I want to see where that takes me. Awesome. Ride this wave. <laughs> it's an exciting wave. And speaking from experience, yeah, we're all winging it. We're all trying <laughs> to figure it out. As we oh, that's good to hear. That's for yeah. sure. Um, recommendations for people to, I mean, obviously I'll have links to your stuff, your LinkedIn profile and your website for people to check out the work that you're doing and the things that you're, you're writing about, but, um, people or books, authors, podcasts, resources that have been influential for you in the journey, or you find yourself recommending often to people uh, that I can put some links in for any listeners of this podcast. What, uh, what do you recommend people start with when they're. So, uh, I, um, I haven't finished, but uh, it's influenced a lot of my most recent work is um, cast by Isabel Wilkerson kind of gives you a framework um, for understanding uh, the system in the United States. And um, it led me to kind of start framing, uh, framing our, our, our system, like kind of like, you know, if, if like, like exactly like you were saying, if all of this DEI work and if, if all of these things that we see are the, the, the user interface of a, of a system, like the cast system is the source code. Right. So that's, that's how I frame it. I, I got a lot of that from, from reading uh, Isabel Wilkerson. Um, 
I, I would be remiss if I, uh, if I didn't sort of give a shout out to, uh, I'm on the, the board of a uh, local nonprofit called Service Never Sleeps. Um, and they do a lot of great work in the, uh, the, uh, around uh, social justice. And they have an amazing, um, you can do the day long training, but they also have it in, in like, I think online format of an allyship training that they do, um, which was very, very influential for me because like I saw this and, um, the, the, the head of the organization, Whitney Parnell was the, the one that was uh, doing this training. And I was like, wow, you can do this. Like you, you can, you can do this and say these things. I mean, like out loud, right? Like she, it was, it was, a, it was a very, it was real. It was like, it, you know, it got, people were like mind blown and like, the eight hours of the training didn't feel like eight hours. It, it felt like an instant. And you're like, you're like the, the day is gone kind of, but it was so impactful. Um, I mean, there are, uh, if you want to, if you want a kind of introduction to like a, a dip your foot in the water of inclusion, uh, I do recommend uh, the four stages of psychological safety by Timothy Clark. Um, I'm using a lot of his work in, in, in what I'm doing, um, particularly on the inclusion piece. Um, I mean, th- there's, there's not much conversation around, uh, around justice, but it, at, like, uh, the, which, which, you know, I'm supplementing, but, um, but it is a very good, uh, uh, introduction to kind of creating some of the more culturally flat, um, organizations that are, 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 you know, power is a little bit more diffused and you have the ability to input and kind of create this, uh, the, the, these robust dialogues. I mean, and, and all the, um, the, the big, uh, the big hits, um, like, you know, of course I, you can read white fragility. You can read how to be an anti-racist. They all have some degree of value, but I will say one of my most favorite books uh, out there, that also helped uh, me on this journey was how to be less stupid about race. Um, and uh, it like, like Dr. Kendi's how to be an anti-racist. There is an element of uh, the author going through a specific journey, but it, it, it is, it, there's, there's a degree of academic work in there. And then there's a degree of like just realness. And it, it's just, it's, it's wonder. It's a wonderful way to get uh, on this topic. I mean, there, uh, there are a lot, so uh, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. But um, but I guess like I, I I tend to try and elevate some of these uh, like some podcasts and some some books that I'm uh, reading in, on my LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to connect with me and share ideas, I'm always open. Awesome. Well, I appreciate those recommendations, and uh, I'm, I'm going to check out the How to Be Less Stupid About Race for sure. That one sounds intriguing, and it's, a, I, it's very good. Yeah, I agree with you on uh, the work of Timothy Clark. He's been helpful for me in helping people unpack psychological safety because the original research on it, it's kind of like anything. It gets boiled down to like a term, and people think they understand it, and it's much more nuanced than that. And so I appreciate yeah. the way he's nuanced it into actually different phases of this or different experiences of psychological safety. Um, yeah. One of Love my earliest podcasts was the problem with grit. Um, so these like grit, Oof. growth mindset, and resiliency, and all of these buzzwords that we throw around, and and it's just more hyper individualism in a lot of ways. And so yeah, yeah, I appreciate anybody who's got a nuanced perspective on some of these buzzwords. Oh, I, I definitely have to listen to that one. I have my own problems with this uh, 
the the individualist uh, mindset. I mean, there there is there is a there is a there may be a place for grit, I think, in our society, but the way it is in its current manifest, it is very bro culture esque. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, not a fan. Yeah, you know who doesn't need to be told to develop more grit is anybody who's been marginalized and oppressed for their life and still managed to make it through oh that. So. You know, uh, real quick, like um, I remember one time, like in one of my past work experience, like uh, places. Um, uh, one of our uh, affinity groups, our employee resource groups, like uh, uh, you know, it, it was our women's group, and they were like constantly talking about, oh, we need resiliency training, and we need these types of trainings. And I'm like, you know, the the only thing like when people started talking about like like that is, what if somebody came up to my mom and 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 told her that we need to put you in a resiliency training. My, my my like like my mother is the most resilient person that I know. Like, if you're a woman or a person of color, you are resilient by nature of the fact that you're here. You've survived. You're resilient. You don't need that training. The only thing we're doing is training people how to somewhat survive in a corrupt, problematic system. Change the system. <laughs> <laughs> but we can i am with you it's uh it's actually what drove me out of addictions treatment finally was i couldn't continue to deal with it at an individual level and try and give people coping mechanisms to deal with shitty life experiences and mm. the misuses and abuses of power that they experienced at a, on a regular basis it's like i gotta i gotta shift gears and and do more of that work um oh wow for sure so um, I'm with you. We could we could talk much longer, but I'm I want to be mindful of your time. You've got a, a young baby in the house. You got a five month old. I got three kids. I got to get to bed here at some point. So <laughs> we'll uh, we'll probably call it here. I am going to direct people to check you out on the web, criticalequity.com, and to connect with you on LinkedIn. I'll have links to all this in the show notes as well. Um, Farzine, thank you so much for carving out some time and a thank pleasure to chat. These are. These are big and important questions that we are wrestling with as a, as a society right now. And I'm thankful to, uh, to be a part of your journey and to listen in on your conversations on LinkedIn. They're always enlightening. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You bet. We'll, we'll chat soon. All right. Sounds good.